It's Thursday, June 14th, and this is The Daily Dive. Earlier this week, a federal judge ruled that AT&T could proceed with its $85 billion merger with Time Warner. It was a landmark case that is expected to usher in a period of industry consolidation, particularly between media, tech, and telecom companies. Less than 24 hours later, Comcast had put in a bid to buy 21st Century Fox assets. Steve Overly, tech reporter for Politico, joins us to talk about how this ruling changes the corporate landscape. Next, another only in California story is ready for the November ballot. The Cal 3 initiative has qualified for the ballot and would split up California into three different states, each with its own pair of senators. John Myers, Sacramento bureau chief for the LA Times, joins us to talk about California's 168-year-old run as a single state and the tough road ahead for this measure to pass. Finally, an update in the case of the Golden State Killer. Under a new funding bill, victims could possibly get money from the state restitution fund. Victims only have three years after a crime to receive restitution, but new language added to a budget bill could allow victims of the Golden State Killer to receive compensation now that we have a suspect. Kellen Browning with the Sacramento Bee joins us for more on this. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We are gratified uh, with the court's uh, decision to categorically reject the government's bid to block this historic merger. Joining us now is Stephen Overly, technology reporter with Politico. So a judge ruled that AT&T can proceed with its acquisition of Time Warner. It's a $85 billion deal. What was in the ruling that he passed? Basically, the judge was faced with a fundamental question of would this merger harm customers, either by raising prices on their cable bills or eliminating competitors for their business. Ultimately, he decided that wasn't the case, that this deal was not going to harm consumers or threaten the market, and therefore it should be allowed under the law. AT&T, on their part, was arguing that they needed to buy Time Warner so that they compete with uh, new rivals uh, in in the space like Facebook, Google, and uh, specifically Netflix. That's right. People are cutting the cord. They're moving away from traditional cable to online services like Netflix, Amazon, YouTube TV. And AT&T is trying to compete in this new world order. And they feel that owning Time Warner's content, which includes CNN, Warner Brothers, HBO, would allow them to more easily compete with some of these internet services that have become so popular. And I love the judge's ruling how uh, when he said from the bench, the parties waged an epic battle. The court has now spoken. The defendants have won. Trying to make it very clear because the Department of Justice was weighing whether they would be appealing the ruling. That's right. And they're still weighing whether to appeal the ruling. This was a very long trial. You know, the trial itself was six weeks. The Justice Department spent more than a year reviewing this merger before they filed their lawsuit. And it was a rare lawsuit. So there was a lot at stake here for the Justice Department. And this was a very decisive and very clear loss for them. So it's, there's still the potential that they could file an appeal. And really what this does is it sets up the landscape for a lot of other big-time mergers. The next thing to expect is Comcast making a bid for 21st Century Fox, a bunch of their assets. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as this ruling came down, they were it was like they were waiting for it because a lot of the details are similar, they made a bid right away. That's right. About 24 hours after this ruling was announced, they put out a bid for $65 billion. 
saying they wanted to buy many of the assets of, of 21st Century Fox. And all along, this was expected. Even when they announced the deal, Comcast said they felt more confident that it would go through as a result of the ruling. So there really is a direct connection between that decision on Tuesday and Comcast's decision to make this offer on Wednesday. And there's a lot of other mergers that are coming up. T-Mobile and Sprint have agreed to merge. Are there any other ones that we can keep an eye out for? Certainly the T-Mobile Sprint is a big one. There's some outside industries like healthcare, where we also see some mergers happening. One of the things I think that's expected is now that the Justice Department has lost this ruling, there's a sense that we will see more mergers, both vertical mergers like the Time Warner AT&T deal, but even other mergers that may now feel more emboldened to kind of enter the regulatory process and that they will come out ahead. You said uh, that it was a vertical merger. Explain that. What's a vertical merger in this uh, in the sense of the words? Absolutely. It's a little bit of a wonky term, but essentially a vertical merger is when one company buys a company that is not a direct rival. So if you look at AT&T Time Warner, for example, AT&T distributes television content and Time Warner creates television content. They don't compete with one another, though they do need one another. That differs from a horizontal merger. A great example of that is the Sprint T-Mobile deal, where there you have two direct rivals. One is buying another, and therefore a competitor is being taken out of the market. The vertical merger explanation kind of figures into what the Department of Justice was arguing, that one company makes the content, the other one distributes it. So they're going to give themselves preferential treatment as opposed to content coming from another company or even you know beyond that, the Netflixes and all that. That was one of the arguments that the Justice Department made. Essentially, AT&T, if it owns this Time Warner content, would have the incentive to not only prioritize that content, but it could withhold it from rivals or charge rivals a lot more money in order to distribute that content. But the companies really pushed back on that notion. You know, the business model of Time Warner content is that it needs to be broadly distributed if it's really to be profitable. And the companies argue that that does not change after this merger. And the judge agreed with the companies in that instance. And the president himself was against this particular merger. I know he had said things on, uh, in the campaign and all, but uh, how does he figure into all this? Absolutely. President Trump, from pretty much the time this deal was announced when he was still on the campaign trail, was opposed to it. He said it put too much power in the hands of too few and that if he were elected president, he would block it. Well, a few weeks later, he was elected president, and about a year later, his Justice Department sued to block the merger. Now, the Justice Department and the White House have said that Trump did not interfere in that decision, that the review process was not political, but certainly there have been a lot of questions around this merger and whether Trump did have some influence on the Justice Department's decision to sue. That was never really settled in court, but at the end of the day, it didn't necessarily matter. The merger was still allowed to go through based on the antitrust argument alone. This ruling sets the stage for a lot of other big-time mergers. Comcast did make that bid for 21st Century Fox. We'll see how Disney responds, and uh, we'll see what the business landscape looks like after that. The business, media, technology, the entire landscape changes with this ruling. That's that's right. I think the next merger is really going to be an interesting one to watch because you know there was so much about this deal that was unique. And so really, it remains to be seen what happens the next time the DOJ is faced with a similar decision. Stephen Overly, technology reporter with Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
you get rid of all the sacred cows, you get rid of all the baggage, all the things that California has been sort of adding to itself. We couldn't do worse than what we got now. Joining us now is John Myers, L.A. Times Sacramento Bureau Chief. Thank you very much for joining us, John. You're welcome. So California had a great run, 168 years as a single state. <laughs> um, now uh, there is a, um, a plan going on the November ballot to split the state up in three parts. Uh, what is this all about? Yeah, and I, I would say at the outset, too, I think our run is, is is still going, so don't count us out quite yet. We'll see what happens in November. Well, we don't know but, yet, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, really what this, this does is it asks Californians, do they want to stay in one state or do they want to become three states? It doesn't automatically happen overnight, even if voters said yes in November. There are substantial hurdles, not only in the United States Constitution, but I would argue probably in courts of law about whether or not this would happen, but effectively... This proposal would take California's 58 counties and would slice them into three separate states, largely a Northern California and a Southern California. And then just to make things totally confusing, the third state would be called California. It would get to keep the name. My employers in Los Angeles would get to be in the still called California, which would go along the southern coast, while those of us, like I live in Sacramento, would be in northern California, the Central Valley, where their agriculture is, and then down to San Diego would be the southern California. Again, this is the proposal sitting in front of us, the brainchild of a Silicon Valley venture capitalist named Tim Draper. He gathered enough voter signatures to get it on the ballot, and off we go to November. What motivation does Tim Draper have? This isn't the first time. He's tried it a couple times before, at least. Yeah, well, before Tim Draper had a proposal to slice California into six states, and that didn't happen in part because he went out to gather uh, signatures on on a ballot measure, and not enough of those signatures were valid, and so his proposal failed to, to get on the ballot. So this time he went to three states instead of six states. I've talked to Mr. Draper a few times through the years and communicated with him by email this week. And he firmly believes that California is too big of a state to work the way it is, that the quality of life has deteriorated for too many Californians. And he thinks this is the way to, to get past that, to have smaller geographies and uh, smaller governments that could more effectively solve the problems in, in a regional kind of way. Whether that's true remains to be seen, but that seems to be his motivation. How much money has he spent on this initiative so far? Uh, it's unclear how much he has spent on the three California proposal. Um, he spent about $4 million on the one to split it into six states. And, and people should understand what is his money going for. It's to pay people to gather signatures. They stand outside of shopping malls and grocery stores with card tables, and they get people to sign the petition to put it on the ballot. And that costs money. By this spring, he was paying somewhere around $3 for every signature to get it on the ballot. He hasn't told me how much he spent this time around, and he hasn't had to file the state campaign finance reports on it yet, but I would easily say it's in the same ballpark of two to three million, maybe a little bit more to get it on the ballot. He says that other people will come forward to help finance an actual political campaign for this. That, of course, remains to be seen. Also remains to be seen, I should point out, whether some of California's more powerful political players would come out to spend money to oppose it, to say California should stay the way it has been since 1850. Yeah, they submitted over 600,000. I think uh, they verified uh, just a little bit over 400,000, which was enough to get on the ballot. But as you said earlier, too, 
This is going to uh, face a lot of backlash. Both houses of the California legislature would need to approve this. And then beyond that, in uh, in Congress would also need to be able to approve this. Uh, it would change the state completely from two senators. We'd have six senators now. So uh, this is just a bunch of hurdles that really don't make it seem like it would be very possible. Yeah, I, I would really call this uncharted territory. And, and some, of course, will quibble with that and say, well, West Virginia was born out of Virginia in 1863. But I would point out we were in the midst of, of the Civil War and, and completely different tensions. There really is no template for this. The United States Constitution, I think, as you alluded to, simply says the consent of the states involved and the consent of Congress. Now, the first part, the consent of the state involved, which would be California, could be the California legislature. But keep in mind, for people who don't live in California, the initiative process, going to the ballot directly, is considered to be the voters writing laws, the voters taking in to their hands the legislative power. So some say maybe it doesn't have to go to the legislature. That that was enough. I bet that gets challenged in court. And then this consent of Congress, which is a political issue as much as it is legal, you rightly pointed out there'd be more United States senators. Uh, it would split up California's electoral college votes into three states, which I think would be quite troubling to Democrats nationally who have counted on California. So there are unbelievable hurdles to this. I think the larger question really is, does it spark a conversation about the future of California? Mr. Draper says, I'm not trying to make a symbolic point. I'm serious. But I think that you know this discussion with Californians this year could be really interesting about where they want the state to go forward and do they think it's viable. Has there been any polls done about voters' ideas on this proposal? Not not much that I have seen. During the era of splitting the state into six Californias, there was very little support for it, but there has not been any recent polling to speak of, certainly not any public polling to speak of. But, you know, I would point out that one of the challenges, too, becomes you have to look at the economies of what these three Californias would look like. They'd roughly be equal in population, but clearly the coastal California state would have more money in the northern California, perhaps, than the inland state, because that's a lot where Silicon Valley is, obviously in Southern California, tourism and Hollywood. One of the questions is, could these states sustain themselves? And then here's a fun one for people who don't live in California. All of the water, really, in California comes from the north and flows to the south, where all the people live. How would these uh, rules work between states that might not want to share their water? There are there are a lot of complicated questions, and I think this is the beginning of an unusual and fascinating conversation about how California governs itself and what California really is. Well, I'm a California native, and I love how crazy we are. Uh, we'll have to wait till November. John Myers, LA Times, Sacramento Bureau Chief, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. My daughter must have been a very, very brave girl at that moment, and she probably fought him off. Someday maybe we'll get a chance to talk to him, and I'd like to ask him, why did he pick my house? Joining us now is Kellen Browning with the Sacramento Bee. So there were some uh, new developments in the uh, case of the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist. We've been following, you know, anything that comes out from this is just a, such an interesting case. Under a new bill, there's news that victims might be able to get some money from the state restitution fund. What is this about? The California Victim Compensation Board gives out uh, money to victims who have demonstrated or applied for funds from emotional harm. So generally, they have to apply within three years after uh, a crime has occurred to seek compensation. 
But uh, in this case, there was some people, both with the board and the state, that introduced language to a, a Senate bill that would allow uh, victims of the East Area Rapists to apply for restitution from uh, because of emotional harm that they may have received after um, the suspect was identified. So this is obviously after the um, the uh, crimes occurred, is or decades ago, but this new language would allow people to apply now up until December 31st of 2019. Do we know how they can prove that they're connected as victims or what the emotional harm is? Is there any language on how they have to prove that? I'm not sure about how they have to prove it. I looked on their website, the, the Compensation Board's website, and there's a pretty lengthy application. There is, there is language about what this emotional harm could include, and it says, includes but is not limited to harm incurred while preparing to testify. So uh, that could be that the victims are in court, but it also sounds like, um, from what I was hearing while writing the article, that it could just be victims who incurred emotional harm or monetary loss as a result of the arrest of the suspect. Have they received any uh, inquiries yet about this? Yes, actually, they have. Um, I talked to someone with the State Department of Finance uh, who told me that the board has received um, inquiries from 25 victims so far from a couple different counties in Northern California. And it sounds like there's a tip line in Sacramento County um, where previously unknown victims have called to say that they were victimized. And uh, the board is estimating 50 direct victims and 12 family members that might get paid. Wow, that's amazing. And then what kind of payment uh, or restitution would they be getting? Well, in terms of the amount, it sounds like the amount depends on how much the board offered for compensation at the time of the original crime back in the 70s or 80s. So in 1974, that maximum amount, the maximum possible amount a victim could receive um, was $10,000. And then um, in 1986, that increased to $46,000. So it's going to be a wide range of possible uh, payments to, to, to victims. Thank you very much for joining us, Kellen Browning from the Sacramento Bee. Thank you. So far, this bill has passed the Senate and Assembly Budget Committees and will be likely voted on by the full Senate later today. And because interest is so high in the case of the Golden State Killer, other high-profile cases have been reopened to see if Joseph James D'Angelo had anything to do with any of them. One such case was a brutal double slaying in Simi Valley, California. In this case, Craig Coley was wrongfully convicted and spent 38 years behind bars until DNA evidence exonerated him. Governor Jerry Brown pardoned Coley last year on Thanksgiving Eve. The pardon came after a lengthy investigation that was launched in 2016 by Simi Valley Police. They began to re-examine the case when a retired detective cast doubts about Coley's guilt, and they were able to prove him innocent once detectives located DNA evidence from the slayings that were once thought to be destroyed. Investigators thought it was a long shot, but decided to test D'Angelo's DNA in this case. They said that the way D'Angelo allegedly carried out 12 of the slayings he's accused of were very similar to the Simi Valley slayings in 1978, and they were also within the same time frame and thought it might be possible. So detectives tested D'Angelo's DNA and found that he was not a match for the Simi Valley murders, and there was no other reason to suspect that he was the actual killer. Detectives are now back to pursuing other possibilities. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.